This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Abortion is one of the most divisive issues in our country. And now, with its new strength and conservative majority, the Supreme Court has agreed to hear a case that could mean overturning the landmark Roe v. Wade decision, which legalized abortion nationwide. Here's Planned Parenthood President Alexis McGill-Johnson. It is absolutely a challenge that goes straight to the heart of Roe, and uh, in doing so, threatens to overturn 50 years of precedent. The Mississippi law at issue bans abortion in almost all cases after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Joining me is Stephen Vladek, a constitutional law professor at the University of Texas Law School. Steve, what does the court taking this case suggest to you? I mean, I think it suggests that the new conservative majority is ready to dramatically narrow the scope of the constitutional right to obtain an abortion that the court, of course, recognized in Roe v. Wade and preserved in Planned Parenthood versus Casey. This is going to be, I think, the most important abortion decision the Supreme Court's handed down, at least since Casey in 1992. Tell us about Mississippi's law. Yep. So the law at issue here um, is effectively a ban on any and all abortions starting in the 15th week of pregnancy. No matter the reason, no matter the justification, basically doctors may not perform abortions, women may not receive abortions if the pregnancy is at least 15 weeks along. And of course, that's a pretty significant departure from Roe and Casey, which had set the line at viability at the point at which a fetus is theoretically capable of surviving outside the womb. That's usually closer to 20, maybe even 22 weeks. So, you know, the law is basically moving up the window where abortions are legal, compressing it dramatically and basically daring the Supreme Court to either reaffirm Casey or hold that states are allowed to do this. So the lower courts ruled that the law was unconstitutional, and federal judge Carl Reeves wrote, the state chose to pass a law it knew was unconstitutional to endorse a decades-long campaign fueled by national interest groups to ask the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. Do you agree that that was the reason why Mississippi enacted the law? Absolutely. I mean, it's not a coincidence that this law was enacted shortly after Justice Kennedy announced that he was retiring from the Supreme Court. But, June, look at the appeal in the Fifth Circuit. Mississippi didn't even request oral argument when it appealed Judge Reeves' decision to the Fifth Circuit because it knew that based on the Supreme Court precedents as they currently stand, this law is clearly unconstitutional. And that's because under Casey, the state may not categorically ban pre-viability abortions. It's exactly what the Mississippi law does for abortions carried out between the 15th week of pregnancy and viability. This was all along an effort to get this case to the Supreme Court. June, the big difference is that although the law was initially motivated by the retirement of Justice Kennedy, we of course now also have the replacement of Justice Ginsburg by Justice Amy Coney Barrett. The Fifth Circuit affirmed the judge's decision, and the Fifth Circuit is considered perhaps the most conservative circuit in the country? Oh, I I don't even think that's in question. But the Fifth Circuit recognized, as I think everybody else does, that there's no way to reconcile Mississippi's law with the existing Supreme Court precedents with Rowan Casey. And I think, June, that's why so many people were waiting to see what the Supreme Court did with this case. They would have been well within their rights to just deny cert. There's no split in the lower courts. This is an issue that the Fifth Circuit thought was compelled by existing Supreme Court precedent. And that's why the grant is such a big story, because the grant is the Supreme Court saying, we didn't have to take this case. We know you only brought this case to ask us to either overrule or dramatically narrow row, and we're going to do that. So 
The court deferred acting on this case since late September. What do you read into that? You know, it's a great question, June. This case was relisted, is the technical term, I think over a dozen times from the Justice Conference. I don't know what the answer is. I mean, I think it's unusual to see a case relisted like that so many times and then granted. Usually that's a sign that someone is dissenting from a denial of cert. So there's no good, obvious explanation for why this case was held for so long, other than perhaps that the court just wanted to hold it for next term. But even then, the court could have granted it as early as April, even March, and it still would have been on pace for next term. So I'm sure there's an inside story for this June, but it's not one that at least at the moment we're privy to. In its appeal, Mississippi argued that viability is not an appropriate standard for assessing the constitutionality of a law regulating abortion. And is that what the justices agreed to consider, the viability Yeah, so there were three questions presented in the petition, and the only one the court granted was whether pre-viability bans, like the one Mississippi has put out there, are per se unconstitutional under Roe and Casey. That's why the court could theoretically rule for Mississippi without overruling Roe. They could say, you know, no, they're not per se unconstitutional, but they're also not per se constitutional. And that would leave at least something left to Roe. But it's worth stressing, Justice Blackmun's opinion in Roe, which is often maligned but seldom read, spends a lot of time explaining why viability is a relevant inflection point. And Blackman's argument is that viability is the point at which a fetus is capable of surviving outside the womb. Therefore, it's the point at which the state's interest in protecting the life of the fetus can be, you know, sort of separated from the state's interest in protecting the health of the pregnant woman. Because up to that point, the fetus depends upon the pregnant woman for everything necessary for life. And so that was the animating premise of Roe. The court could theoretically limit that without gutting Roe, but any incursion at this point is going to be a dramatic restriction of a woman's right to choose. And yet at the confirmation hearings of the last three justices appointed by President Trump, they all said that Roe v. Wade was established precedent. (laughs) Well, I think we know exactly how far you can take those statements. There's a reason, June, this is why abortion rights groups see this as an ominous sign and why anti-abortion groups see this as a huge victory already just from the grant. This is not a case where the grant is at all equivocal as to what the court's going to do. There's no circuit split to resolve. There's no messy question that the lower courts clearly got wrong. This is a case that has been designed from the moment the law was passed to prompt the new conservative courts to revisit Roe. And along the way, the court got even more conservative. So... Amy Coney Barrett isn't even on the bench for a year yet. And we've often talked before about Chief Justice John Roberts liking to do things incrementally. Are you surprised that the conservatives are moving so fast in taking this case? No, because Chief Justice Roberts isn't an important vote anymore. And I think the marginalization of the Chief Justice is something we're seeing a lot toward the end of this term. The fact that the court took this massive Second Amendment case a couple weeks ago for next term, the fact that the court's taking this case, some of the other things the court is doing. I mean, I think, June, this is much, much less the Roberts court than the court we saw as recently as a year ago. And I think insofar as the median vote now is Brett Kavanaugh or Neil Gorsuch or maybe even Amy Coney Barrett, that's a court that's going to be, I think, a lot more aggressive and a lot more willing to sort of brush aside concerns about eroding their institutional legitimacy by moving against precedent this quickly. Just in taking this case, and if they rule in favor of Mississippi's law, will that give new fuel to those who want to pack the court? It certainly will be invoked as yet another reason why 
you know, the Supreme Court should be expanded if you see a six to three or even a five to four decision that dramatically limits Roe. Yeah, I'm sure that will be yet a further reason. But, you know, June, we were already heading this way, I think, even before Justice Ginsburg died. I mean, I think, you know, this case is a good example of how conservatives understood from the get-go that Justice Kavanaugh replacing Justice Kennedy was going to be a huge opportunity to remake a series of doctrines. We saw another one actually in another decision the court issued today about the retroactivity of a new interpretation of the Sixth Amendment. So, you know, I think, yes, it will be fodder for the court patent advocates. But, you know, in many respects, the real fodder is not any individual decision, June, but the overall pattern. If the court does reverse Roe, could we reach a point where laws in states that protect abortion could be found unconstitutional? I don't think so, because that's the flip side of the coin. I think what we're heading for is very much the world that we saw before Roe, where there's just a wild divergence in state laws and where mostly blue states are going to have pretty strong protections for abortion, perhaps all the way up to viability, maybe even in some cases past viability, and that red states are going to go as far as they possibly can to cut off access to abortions. And so it's just going to be you know, a tale of two legal regimes where women in blue states will have access to abortions and women in red states principally won't. Mississippi was arguing about at what point the fetus can feel. Do you expect to hear those kinds of arguments at the Supreme Court, the sort of clinical approach? Oh, I'm sure we will. I mean, because I think, you know, the the anti-abortion groups understand the stakes here, and they understand that they finally have the court they want, um, something that they've been, you know, I mean, June, we're looking, you know, we're almost 50 years, right, into the fight to get rid of Roe. And from their perspective, I think, you know, this is all hands on deck. Every possible argument about why, you know, abortion in general is problematic about why states should be allowed flexibility in deciding where the deadline is and ought to be for obtaining a legal abortion. I mean, I think, you know, if there's an argument out there, it's going to be made. And, you know, this is already, we're already looking at a term, next term, that's shaping up to be a pretty blockbuster term. This is going to be one of the big picture cases, no matter what else is added. Tell us about some of the blockbuster cases next term. I mean, there's the Second Amendment case. There's a good bet we're going to have some pretty important affirmative action cases before the court next term. You know, if there are challenges to any of the Biden administration's major policies, I think, you know, we'll see those given the Supreme Court next term. So it's going to be quite quite a year. The three very conservative justices appointed by President Trump will really make the difference in this case and so many other cases. It is often said of John Adams, um, who also served one term as president, um, that his most important legacy was who he put on the Supreme Court. And for all of the sort of short-term damage Trump did to our system, I think there's no question that his long-term legacy, at least constitutionally, is going to be you know, the three justices he put on the court. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Steve. That's Professor Stephen Vladek of the University of Texas Law School. Last month, Justice Stephen Breyer rejected the characterization of the Supreme Court as conservative. I hope and expect that the court will retain its authority. But that authority, like the rule of law, depends on trust. A trust that the court is guided by legal principle, not politics. But by adding major abortion and gun rights cases to its docket, the Supreme Court is offering hints of the kind of paradigm shift that conservatives have long been hoping for. Joining me is Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. Greg, this term has been a little low-key. Will next term be any different? 
it will be very different June. We already have two of the biggest hot-button issues the country faces on the docket for next term. That's gun rights and abortion. And we could well get an affirmative action case as well. Next term really looks to be the one where we find out just how conservative this Supreme Court is. You spoke to Professor Leah Littman of the University of Michigan, and she said there are certain things you get appointed to do. And for movement conservative lawyers, that's limit or overrule Roe, expand the Second Amendment and invalidate affirmative action. So is this what conservatives have been waiting for from the Supreme Court? It absolutely is. And, you know, Roe v. Wade is kind of the holy grail for the conservative legal movement. It's the decision that so many of them think was horribly wrong and they'd like to see overturned. And up until very recently, that didn't seem like anything more than a pipe dream. But now with this 6-3 conservative court, it's at least a real possibility to be discussing. Now, the court will still have to overcome this big hurdle of stare decisis, this idea that the court doesn't like to disturb its precedents. And a couple of the key justices, John Roberts and Brett Kavanaugh, have talked a lot about stare decisis, but at least that's back in the mix now. As you know, it takes four votes in order for the justices to take a case. Amy Coney Barrett has only been on the court for seven months, and we're now seeing the court taking these cases. Is she likely the fourth vote? It sure seems like she has made a difference. Now, of course, the court doesn't tell us who voted to take up a case. And there's certainly a dynamic there that there are times when, even though four justices might want to take up an issue, if they're not sure about getting the fifth justice on their side, they might not be willing to grant review to a case. Here now, the conservative wing of the court is much stronger. And regardless exactly which four of them voted to grant cert, the idea that Amy Coney Barrett there certainly has to be giving the anti-abortion side a lot more confident that they will ultimately prevail when the Supreme Court rules in this case. And tell us how she seemed to make a difference when the court was considering emergency appeals from churches fighting the pandemic restrictions. That's the area where we have so far seen the most concrete movement on this court. In all these emergency cases where churches were saying, hey, these restrictions we're being subject to in terms of capacity limits and things like that are stricter than, say, the retail store down the street. And the Supreme Court has been very, very receptive to those. And we've seen the difference because some of those came up before Amy Coney Barrett joined the court. And John Roberts, the chief justice, was at times siding with the liberal wing and saying we need to give a lot of deference to officials when they're setting out these health rules. And after she joined the court, that changed. So in that area, religious rights, she seems to have made a very big difference. Just to stress, no one can say how the court will rule in these cases, but explain how just taking them indicates an intent to change the law. June, if there was a solid majority on the court to say, we do not want to disturb, say, the abortion rights precedent, it would have been very easy for the court just to say, no, we're not going to take this appeal. And they didn't do that. And it would be really strange if they decided to take it up, but don't have a majority of the court that is at least very seriously considering watering down or even overturning those key abortion precedents. So now the Second Amendment case Might Justice Brett Kavanaugh replacing Justice Anthony Kennedy have anything to do with the court taking that case? Or are there now so many Second Amendment rights advocates sort of on the court that we don't know? Well, we know that Justice Kavanaugh has said in a couple cases last term that the court didn't take up. He has said, 
I think the court needs to take up more of these cases. I'm concerned that lower courts are not applying our gun rights precedents strongly enough. And that's not the kind of outward sign that Justice Kennedy ever showed. That said, until very recently, the court was still reluctant to take up these cases, even though lower courts had been divided on issues like, is there a a Second Amendment right to carry a handgun outside the home? That's the case the court's going to be taking up next term. It wasn't until you had Amy Coney Barrett on the court and a really solid conservative majority that the right wing of the court was, to coin a phrase, ready to pull the trigger on on taking up one of those cases. As far as the Second Amendment, there is division in the lower courts? There is division on that question of whether restrictions on carrying weapons outside the home, handguns. There are a number of states, mostly liberal states, that require you to show some sort of special need in order to get a license to carry either a concealed or openly carry a handgun. And gun rights groups have been trying to challenge these laws for years. There are a few lower courts that have said they are unconstitutional. A few lower courts have said they are constitutional. And finally, the Supreme Court is going to take up that issue. And you have to think that the gun rights side has an edge in the case. So in that case, there was a split in the circuits. So that's a reason for the Supreme Court to take a case. But in the abortion rights case, in the Mississippi case, there was no split in the circuits, was there? They didn't have to take that case. That's exactly right, June. They did not have to take it. And that's part of what was so striking about the fact that they did. No lower court had said that this sort of ban on abortion, this is a a ban on most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. No lower court, no federal appeals court had said that sort of ban is constitutional. And the reason is the Supreme Court's precedents, in particular the, the 1992 Casey decision, have said that up until the point where a fetus becomes viable, that is capable of living outside the womb, and that's something like 22, 23 weeks, uh, up until that point, states and the, and the federal government can't put significant restrictions on the ability of a woman to get an abortion. Uh, so it's really hard to square with the Casey decision. And one of the real questions for the court is, Uh, If they are going to uphold this Mississippi law, how can they possibly do that without overturning, at least in part, the Planned Parenthood versus Casey decision? The conservatives seem to be moving fast to me, but in your story, you said that it wasn't fast enough for some conservatives. Is there outside pressure from conservatives for the new conservative justice to take these cases? Yeah, it was probably unrealistic. Uh, There have been a number of much less significant cases where we have seen Amy Coney Barrett in particular not go as far as some of her more conservative colleagues. For example, one of those COVID cases involved a ban on singing or chanting at worship services, and she wasn't ready to say that that ban should, should be blocked. That's just one example of of cases where she's been a somewhat careful jurist, and that has frustrated some conservatives that the court hasn't moved more quickly. That said, it's still her first term, and the fact that she is perhaps being a little bit cautious, and, and maybe even some of the other justices are being a little bit cautious in her first term, is by no means a sign that she won't be basically the kind of judge that conservatives were hoping for when she was nominated and confirmed. Just to stress, no one can say how the court will rule in these cases, but explain how just taking them indicates an intent to change the law. June, if there there was a solid majority on the court to say, we do not want to disturb 
say, the abortion rights precedents. We do not want to call into question the Casey decision. It would have been very easy for the court just to say, no, we're not going to take this appeal. And they didn't do that. They, they actually sat on it for uh, quite a long time, more than seven months, before deciding what to do. But ultimately, they decided to take it up. And it, it would be really strange if they decided to take it up but don't have a majority of the court that is at least very seriously considering watering down or even overturning those key abortion precedents. Now, there's also an affirmative action appeal before the court, and a conservative group, Students for Fair Admissions, has been mapping how to get that issue before the court again by bringing cases in courts across the country. Is that something that the court might take up as well? Absolutely. And this is an area where we've seen John Roberts be highly skeptical of using race as an admissions factor. It's entirely possible in this case that he is a justice who is eager to take up a case. The key precedent, or or, or one of the key precedents that this group is asking the court to to overturn is this 2003 uh, case called Grutter versus the University of Michigan, that upheld the use of race-based admissions as long as it's part of a holistic review of an applicant's file. And unlike in the abortion context where Mississippi is not directly asking the court to overturn a precedent, in this case, the group that's suing Harvard College over its admissions practices is directly asking the Supreme Court to overturn the Grutter decision. It's possible it will be more than the court wants to bite off in a single term to have guns and abortion and affirmative action. On the other hand, given the way this has been such a long-standing issue that that has bothered John Roberts, uh, it's also very easy to see how they might get four votes to take up that case as well. Even if they don't take the affirmative action case, just taking the Second Amendment case and the abortion rights case in one term, and depending on what the result is, doesn't that give more fuel to the progressives who want to pack the court? Absolutely. If we see uh, Supreme Court uh, a year from now or or 13 months from now at the end of the next term that has uh, gutted the uh, Roe and and Casey, has expanded uh, gun rights, has overturned, abolished affirmative action, at least in the higher education context, absolutely that will add fuel Uh, to the fire for those who want to do something about the Supreme Court possibly adding seats. Of course, Democrats may not have the votes uh, to do that, but the the calls will only grow louder uh, if, if that happens. Speaking of which, President Joe Biden's Supreme Court Commission held its first public meeting on Wednesday. What happened? Well, it was a very brief meeting. They met for only about 20 minutes. Uh, uh, the members, or the 33 of the 36 of them who were, were in attendance uh, via Zoom, uh, all took their oaths. They, uh, a few of the commissioners laid out the scope of what they were going to do, and that includes looking at all manner of proposals to expand the court, to uh, limit its jurisdiction, to impose term limits on justices. Uh, not to make recommendations, but to look at all those proposals, to analyze them, to, to, to assess their legality, that, that sort of thing. Uh, the the uh, commissioners laid out the scope of what they're going to do, and that was about it. And then they said they'll meet again. The next meeting, public meeting, will include some testimony and uh, maybe a little more 
substance and, and perhaps contentiousness. It's a, a Democratic-led commission, but it is bipartisan. There are some uh, differing views uh, um, among the members of them. And uh, 180 days from now, or from the day that, date of that first meet, meeting, we are uh, supposed to get uh, the, the commission's report, and we'll see what happens from there. The fact that Biden didn't ask the commission to make any recommendations has led some people to think that this commission is just a way of biding time because it's another report when there are so many reports already out there on the courts. Yeah, it could well end up that way, uh, at least until Democrats are able to coalesce around something. Right now, there are a lot of different ideas out there for what to do about the court, and and there's by no means a consensus as to what, if anything, should happen. Uh, Perhaps the the commission will uh, hone some of the the issues and, and make it easier for for those who want change to coalesce around one or two or three particular proposals. But uh, it it is also certainly possible that by the time this report comes out, the attention will have been turned elsewhere and whatever momentum there was for changing the court will have dissipated a bit. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show, Greg. That's Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso. Thanks so much for listening. Please tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Eastern right here on Bloomberg Radio.